Before the break, we were talking about death to self. When you are forgotten, neglected, or purposefully set at naught, and you don't sting and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but your heart is joyful, being counting, counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, when your desires are not interesting to her, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart, or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any impunctuality, or any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, and spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured it, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any clothes, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interruption, that is dying to self. When you no longer care to hear yourself in conversation, or to record your own good works, or itch after commendation, when you can truly love to be unrecognized for something good, that is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from your wife, and knowing she's right, you can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly to the truth, finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart. That is dying to self. And that's what makes you the leader God wants you to be in your home. It's not easy. It's a great spiritual challenge. But when you lead in an environment of love and self-denial, you create an atmosphere that a woman longs for. The love Christ models for husbands is not only sacrificial love, it's also a purifying love. In verse 26 of Ephesians 5, he says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with water with the word, that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be blameless and holy. A sanctifying, purifying love. Jesus gives his life for the church, and he seeks for the purity of the church. And husbands, we are to leave our, lead our wives to holiness and purity. In Jesus' time and place, a man would take a bath, thoroughly cleansing himself, and then all through the day he had only periodically to wash his feet. When we came to Christ, we took a bath in baptism. And now in Christ we're being kept cleansed. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, goes on cleansing us, says the Apostle John. Cleansing her by the washing of water with the Word. Expose your wife to the Word of God. Be the leader on this. Let her hear the Word of God, so that she may be routinely cleansed. Sanctify them through the truth. God's Word is truth. Tell your wife the truth. People get confused in this old world. Never lead your wife into any sin. Don't expose her 
to iniquity. Don't draw her into those things that are going to tempt her. Don't take her to entertainment that's going to expose her to sinful feelings. Don't irritate her or embitter her so that she falls to the temptation of anger. You all know the buttons to push to make your wife angry. Don't do that. You can drag up that thing from the past, whatever it is, that always elicits the same hostility. You can say, oh, you're just like your mother. Don't do that if it's problematic. If you seek her purity and her holiness, if you want her to be unstained, don't lead her into anything that produces a strong temptation for her. Bring the Word of God to her. Encourage her to study the Bible. And you need to be prepared to answer her questions about it. If you're not prepared, get prepared. And encourage her to study with others. More than once, I've had a man come to me and say, Well, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, my wife is gone. She ran off with whoever. All of a sudden? That's not the beginning of something. That's the end of something. That's the end of a long-developed pattern of sin before you finally bolt like that. What have you been doing to discipline your wife, to, to, to disciple your wife, so that that doesn't happen? That's the spiritual leadership as a joint heir with her. What are you doing to strengthen your, life, your wife in a spiritual manner? The Lord is constantly saying to us, as He did at the end of the Bible, Come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Those things damage your wife, because friendship with the world is enmity with God. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's nobody here who's not susceptible to the gravity of this world. I don't care who they are. I don't care how old they are. Men, you have the responsibility for the protection of your wife's purity. So the negative side of that is to prevent temptation, and the positive side of it is exposure to the Word of God. In Athens, when a wife was taken, she was bathed in the waters of a sacred river. This symbolized a cleansing from all previous defilement and the entrance into a pure marital life. It corresponds to the traditional white gown worn by a bride when she marries today. It represents purity. Purity is the experience we want for our wives. Marriage is supposed to be a purifying experience. It takes this woman and separates her from all others unto her husband. Her husband then takes on the responsibility for the maintenance of that purity. The love of Christ for his church causes him to desire to keep his church pure and clean. And your love for your wife should have exactly the same desire. It's pretty challenging to live with a godly woman. It's pretty challenging to live with a woman who expects you to live everything you teach. But what a joy it is to have somebody who has such high standards of spiritual accountability. If a wife can bring that to a husband, surely in the husband's role, he has an even greater responsibility to bring it to her. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, I'm jealous of you with a godly jealousy, writing to the Corinthian church. I betrothed you to one husband, that is to Christ, that in him you might, I might present you as a pure virgin, but I'm afraid. 
I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. True love is always concerned with the purity of its object. Paul said, let the wives ask their husbands at home. Husband, you have the responsibility to be the spiritual repository of truth for your wife to come to you with spiritual questions and concerns as you open the Bible together. Give her the right answers so that she may be purified. If you love your wife, you hate anything that defiles her. Any so-called love which drags your wife down is uncleanness. It's a false love. Protect her from temptation and expose her to the purifying influence of God's truth. In verse 27 of Ephesians 5, Christ presents to himself that church in all her glory, not having stain or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. The beauty of a woman is not external. The beauty of a woman is internal. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. We need to look on the heart. Your wife's purity is her splendor. Purity is her glory. Her holiness is her beauty. Never paint her faults large in your mind. Love seeks to honor. The godly husband's attitude is, look at the splendor God has given me. There's splendor there, find it. And emphasize that. It is very much within the realm of possibility that this kind of life can be lived. We can all experience this within our own marriages. It's not easy, it's not simple. But with our cooperation, God raises up men who love their wives like Christ loved the church. We need to be aware, at least in broad strokes, of what has happened in and to our civilization. We can criticize the feminist agenda all that we want to, but we cannot ignore the failure of men to follow and fulfill their responsibility as God has designed it. If things aren't going well, you take it right to the leader. In the home, the buck stops with the husband. Were it not for male irresponsibility, feminism would have a much tougher time surviving. So where are the strong husbands? Where are the loyal, loving, leading husbands and fathers? Where are those men who have the backbone and the solid framework of structure on which you can build a marriage and a family and a society? Where are those men? As Josiah Holland said, God give us men. Men have developed their own agendas, their own goals, pursuing their own achievements, often in their own little worlds as aggressive doers, but sometimes in their home appearing passive and indifferent and irresponsible. There was a series of historical events, beginning with the Industrial Revolution and coming down to our own time, which has had the net result of disabling American men from their true role of moral leadership and fatherhood in our civilization. There was a time when a man was the ever-present guide in a close-knit family. But at some point he left for the factory and the materialistic lure of the Industrial Revolution. In one generation, men debated theology in the marketplace. And in a very short time, they were arguing business practices in the tavern. Men who once had an active hand in the education of their sons 
relegated this responsibility to a public school system dominated by female teachers and feminine learning patterns. Once the leaders of social progress, American men came to look on social reform and mercy movements as woman's work, and in time themselves became the objects of that social reform, as in the case of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So over the course of about 150 years, American men walked out in mass on their God-given responsibility of moral and spiritual leadership in the homes, the schools, and in many instances in the churches. It was only about 120 years ago that it became socially and morally acceptable for men not to be involved with their families. And the groundwork for the 21st century fatherless home was set. I've had numerous women tell me through the years and recently that they're sick and tired of living in a world of passive men. And I mention these things not as an excuse but as an explanation of the pull of the world on us. But the real explanation for the breakdown of male leadership is that men no longer obey the word of God. And in our society now, most men have no idea what it says, or if they do, they have no interest whatsoever in following it. The heart of being the man God desires you to be is to get a grip on the responsibility that you have for the physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of your wife and family. Provision and support is not a mystical thing. It's extremely practical. Far more important than your having a major success in your career is that you rightly express the unique biblical role that you have as a man in your own home. Far more important. And that brings us back to Ephesians 5.28. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And please don't forget Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Love them with no mingling of disappointment or frustration or embitterment. And the key word is love. In that Ephesians 5 passage, the word love is used six times from verses 25 through 33. Six times. And if all it said was love, then we could fly off in a thousand different directions. But he says to do this as Christ also loved the church. Peter says, live with her in an understanding way. Understand her strengths and weaknesses. Understand how to please God by honoring her. Love from husband to wife, even if it's undeserved, is to be given lavishly and sacrificially. And that love, rightly applied, has the effect of purifying her and making her more holy. Verse 28 tells us, this is a caring love. Love your wife as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. We take care of our own body. If it's hungry, we feed it. If it's thirsty, we give it drink. If it's dirty, we clean it. And the issue here is giving attention to meeting her needs with as great an alacrity as quick a speed, and the same kind of devotion. Treat your wife with the same preoccupation that you give yourself. Down in verse 31, For this cause, quoting back from Genesis 2, shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. When you got married, you became one flesh. In a sense, you are one body. So you love your wife as your own body because that's what she is in this sense. 
If your needs are met, her needs are met. If her needs are met, your needs are met. You give her the same care as you give yourself because you have an indivisible oneness. You take care of her as if she were you. If you want to be a fulfilled husband, have a fulfilled wife. Treat her as you treat yourself. If she's a Christian, she's not just one with you, she's one with Christ, so she's a daughter of the King. Be very careful how you treat her. Remember those little ones that the Lord referenced in Matthew 18? The little ones who are protected. If you lead your wife into sin, better that a millstone were hanged around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. You lead your wife astray, you'd be better off dead. Verse 29, he says, No man ever yet hated his own flesh. It's not normal to hate yourself. But nourishes it and cherishes it, as Christ also does the church. He meets our needs. Not all our wants, but he meets all our needs. Men, we are the providers, we are the protectors, we are the preservers, we are the resources for our wives and families. That is our responsibility. When you know she has a need, seek to meet it. When you know she has a secret longing in her heart that is reasonable and that will add to her virtue, her well-being, and her happiness, a secret need that will enhance her ability to fulfill her role, then do everything you can to meet that need. She is a God-given treasure to be cared for, cherished, and nourished to be your loving helper. The word nourish means to feed. It's used in chapter 6, verse 4, when it's talking about the children. Bring them up. And cherish means to warm with body heat, sometimes translated to melt or to soften. Cherish is used of a mother bird who pulls all those little baby birds in under her and keeps, her, keeps them cozy and warm in her feathers. It means to provide a nest, warmth, security, to soften your wife into a meek and quiet spirit, to support her, to care for her. She's not the provider. That's the man's responsibility. And if a man does not do that, according to 1 Timothy 5.8, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Biblically, the man is always the provider, as Christ is the provider for his church. But there's a balance, men. You have to be willing to sacrifice your career enough to be able to take care of business at home. Doing what needs doing at home is worth every sacrifice of career. It's often been said, and is certainly true in my case, that I have never personally heard a man on his deathbed say, I sure wish I'd spent more time at the office. But the regrets they do express on their deathbeds would just tear your heart out. So often it's about family. And it snaps everything into perspective pretty fast when you're laying there and you know you're not going to get up. Man was cursed in making a living. Sin made it a lot harder than it used to be. In the garden, you just went around and plucked it off or picked it up. But we sinned, and the ground was cursed, and God said to man, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. So you're the workhorse for your family. And the woman is going to have pain in childbearing, and she's going to have to battle her desire to lead and be in charge. She's going to have to submit herself. The curse was a direct hit on the specific responsibilities God gave men and women. It's much harder to earn a living now, and it's much harder to bear children and submit. It's not easy, and I'm not saying today that it is easy. But you're one flesh. 
And when the Bible says one flesh, the primary reference there is to the sexual union. The sexual union and the birth of a child that comes from the sexual union that carries the genetic of both parents is the true emblem of the oneness of the physical union. The child bears input from both of you. However, in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 16, we're told that a man who joins himself to a harlot is also one flesh with her. So we're not talking here at the beginning about some mystical marriage union. It's a physical union, first of all. But then in marriage, it goes on and beyond that. It engulfs everything about our lives. The fact that we are one flesh becomes unique, emotional, and personal. A man and woman, they leave their respective families. Verse 31 of Ephesians 5. Very intense word, to leave, meaning to abandon. And they cleave to each other, meaning to be glued to. You come together to stick the oneness of physical union, which incorporates oneness of mind, oneness of purpose, oneness of heart. A magnificent, private, personal relationship that's the most intimate God has for us on earth. Hebrews 13.4 tells us that marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers, fornicators, and adulterers God will judge. An unbreakable union. God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16. God hates anything that assaults this union. What assaults this union? Sin assaults this union. And that's why we warn the young and the sometimes not so young, pick carefully. It's for life. Pick wisely because it's for life. Somebody said, boy, that makes me nervous. Well, it ought to make you nervous. What's the key to picking wisely? The key to picking wisely is, first of all, walking in a godly way yourself. Fixing your own personal problems to the extent possible so that your mind is turned to the will of God as your focus in life. And then, when you look around, find out about somebody's reputation. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is better than riches. Mary in the Lord finds someone who worships God from the heart, not just anybody who claims to be a child of God. And be leery of marrying somebody with lots and lots of personal problems. You can help people with lots of personal problems, but marrying them is a completely different issue. And remember that two unhappy people do not make a happy couple. So listen closely to what this person of the opposite gender says. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. There are rules of thumb in various parts of the world. Judy Greer told me one time that the rule of thumb down here is that if you ever are going to want to live anywhere else, don't marry somebody from Shannon County. Because no matter where they are in the world, they're always going to want to be back here. And that's understandable. There's nothing I don't like about Shannon County. It's a great place to be, and it gets under people's skin if they grow up here. Listen to this person carefully. What is their conversation like? What are their companions like? Are they godly people, deep people, shallow people? What are they like? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says that evil company corrupts good morals. What's their family like? Where do they come from? Remember that godly women are not so much concerned with outward adornment as with inward adornment. And when they do call attention to themselves, it's with their virtue. So Paul says in verse 32, 
This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, why should I love my wife like this? Because of the sacredness of marriage. Marriage is the sacred symbol of Christ's relationship to his church. And verse 33 just reviews everything. Let each man love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. I don't think we can completely fulfill this without God's help. But God does give us his help. Clear back in verse 18, he said, Be filled with the Spirit. And where the Spirit of God is control is in control, this can all come to pass. That will put the springtime in a marriage and keep it there. A lot of marriages break up after the kids go. Have you noticed that? Especially recently, it seems. Often in the very early years, the emphasis is just on getting the kids under control. And then they're off to school, and it's homework for years and years and years, and it's also Little League and soccer games or football and baseball and piano lessons, and you've got to buy kid clothes for all those kids, and your kids have friends, and they all come over, and sometimes you have to sort them out according to influence, and you're running a taxi service, and there's a lot of time and energy expended. And there can be a certain disconnection between the two of you in all of these activities of our kids. As one new parent put it, we have met the enemy of marriage and they're little. All those responsibilities are not all happening in the cohesion of the family. It's too chaotic. We're just splattered all over the place. And then they start getting to the place where they're thinking of serious relationships and we want them to get to the right place with the right spouse and then they're gone. And I've seen people who have their whole life collapse at that point. When the real truth is that you ought to be on your second honeymoon when they're gone. You've waited a long time for this. I can tell you it's the best of times right now at our house. When all the child rearing chaos is over, a husband and wife are going to have to look at each other and see what there is there. And it can be and should be the best of times. That's the way God designed it. If you haven't kept a list of offenses, if you're as good at forgetting sins and failures as God is at forgetting yours, if you've cultivated that sacrificial love towards your wife, you're going to be rewarded and she'll be rewarded. It can and should be the best of times. Try praising your wife even if it scares her. Just remember that worthiness is not the issue. And we must not make it the issue. It's not the issue for Jesus. He's so forgiving toward us. And it's not too late for you, no matter what shape your marriage is in right now. Grace gives us a new place to start. Right, Kevin? Grace gives us a new place to start. I like that. And gentlemen, it's got to start with you. When you love your wife as Christ loved his church, that's where to rebuild the whole thing to the extent that it needs rebuilding. Live an obedient life, put your whole heart there, and watch how God rewards that. May all of you have homes that are filled with joy because you follow the pattern that God gave us in his word. Now I was asked to answer a few questions here. One thing is, give us some practical advice of what we can do as husbands and wives each day so we improve our relationship with each other. That's an excellent question. And I'm glad you said each day. Because I think that's important, the regularity of it. 
your marriage is not as likely to be wrecked by a blowout as by a slow leak, by continued negligence and inattention. You can patch a slow leak, but first you have to know you have one. That's critical. I used to think people were lying to me when they would say, well, I didn't realize there was a problem. Or they would say to their mate, I didn't know you felt that way. Now I don't think they're lying. I just think it's been inattention. It's been negligence. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15. It's a little hard to understand it for sure, but I think most commentators would say through their research that it's the bride-to-be who is doing the talking here. In Song of Solomon 2.15, she says, Catch the little foxes for us. Catch the foxes for us. Those little foxes that ruin the vineyard of love for the grapevines are blossoming. She's talking about little foxes as opposed to big threats like a pack of wolves or a lion. Wolves or lions would get your attention. But it's easier to ignore a small thing, a pestery type thing. A fox in this context was a troublesome little creature that would get into your vineyard and gnaw on the leaves and break the branches and eat the grapes and dig down and nibble on the roots and kill the plants. The fox was just a nuisance. Years ago, we had an old black and white tomcat that we dearly loved. We called him George. We'd had him ever since he was a little kitten, and he'd always had such a sweet disposition. He'd been a good cat for a long time, and even though we had other cats, he had a special relationship with us. I don't recall how old he was when this event occurred, but he was long past his prime. In his younger days, he'd had a lot of battles, so he had notches on his ears, and he had plenty of scars, and he had a lot of aches and pains. He wasn't very active anymore. We'd had him for at least a decade, and we loved him. And one day, through my office window, I saw our cat George walking up toward the house from the pond, and buzzing all around him was a fox. This fox was plaguing him and pestering him like it was no tomorrow. Now, when George was a few years younger, there would have been no issue. He would have just jumped in the air a couple of feet and come down with four feet full of claws on the nose of that fox, and the fox would have run for his life if George had spared his life. There would have been no issue. But now George didn't even run. I don't know if he even could run at that point. He just kept walking one step after another, stolidly up toward the office. I thought he was trying to get to me. I was out on the deck by this time. That fox would come in on one side of him and give him a little nip and then he'd run around to the other side and nip him on the other side. It perceived weakness in an old cat and was just a general nuisance. George didn't even look at it. He just looked straight ahead. He made straight paths for his feet, just kept on walking, trying to get to the house. In the Song of Solomon, the woman is asking her husband to take preventive action against the little foxes, the little threats that could damage their relationship. Often it's just the busyness of life, coupled with the obliviousness of the husband, that allows a subtle drifting apart. You may be guarding against the big issues, infidelity, addictions, abuse. There's lots of big issues. But while you're guarding against the big threats, the little foxes dig under your gate and sneak into your vineyard. They don't immediately destroy your love. They just morph you from soulmates into roommates. 
The little foxes are little incivilities. The little foxes are apologies that should be spoken but never are. The little foxes are things that are swept under the rug rather than being addressed and resolved. And you start evading difficult conversations. And when spouses feel ignored or disconnected, they sometimes start leading parallel lives. I shot that fox dead because he was plaguing and threatening our cat. And old George appreciated it. He came up to me and told me in his own cat way. If you're not a cat person, you may not understand. But George and I understood. And what I'm recommending to you today is that you shoot the foxes in your vineyard by using simple, everyday moments to stay connected to each other. So often when couples realize that busyness is killing their connection, they cope by focusing on the next big thing. They start to believe that their relationship can exist from one big thing to the next big thing. From date night to date night, if you have those, or from holiday to holiday, or from vacation to vacation, or from camp out to camp out. And they want these big encounters to be perfect. They want their hopes of connection and intimacy and fun and enjoyment to all come true. And they end up putting too much pressure on the big things, these big experiences. Too much pressure to compensate for months of neglect. And you're making your expectations just set up for failure. We need instead the habit of turning toward each other on a daily basis rather than turning away. When your spouse makes a bid for connection, and that's anything they say or do to get your attention, or to get your affirmation, or to get your affection, or to get your support, embrace that opportunity. Oh, it took me years to learn this. Embrace that opportunity. This way, love is cultivated right during the grind of everyday life. The little moments of connection are the most meaningful of all. We have a choice to turn toward our spouse or away from them. If you turn toward them, you build connection and trust. To understand this, and it may not be easy to understand, I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but think of how children try to get your attention. Because children are much better at, than adults at being clear when they want to connect with you. Will you play with me? We've got a house full of grandkids. We had great-grandkids. They make no bones about it. They're all right out there in the open. You want to play? That's an obvious bid for some time. Jumping in your lap is an obvious bid for some attention. Even bad behavior can be a bid for attention. I want you to notice me. Many of our bids for our spouse's attention are not that obvious and not that well defined. Maybe we don't want to take the risk of rebuff. So recognize a bid for connection when it happens. Be looking for it. Understand the deeper meaning of it. It's not just about the subject that's being addressed. Understand the deeper part of it and respond according to that. Respond in an appropriate manner. When your spouse makes a bid for connection, you can turn away, you can turn toward, or you can turn against. It's up to you. Usually all your spouse wants at that point is just some small sign that you are interested in what interests them. Turning toward them can take only a few seconds in many cases. 
But in that moment, you've shared a connection that means something to both of you and that rides with you through the rest of the day. You've shared a connection. And we send tremendously powerful messages that way. I'm interested in you. You matter to me. I see you trying to connect. I'm open to you. I'm listening. I want to understand you. We're on the same team. I'd like to help you whether I can or not. I'd like to be with you whether I can or not. I accept you even if I don't accept all your behavior. Years ago, one of my sons came into my office and he said, Dad, could we go down in the woods? I said, I'm sorry, son, but I can't possibly do that right now. I'm in the middle of something that has to be done on a deadline, and I can't possibly go right now. And he thought about that for a moment as he stood there, and he said, Do you wish you could? I said, I sure do. I'd much rather go to the woods with you than do what I'm doing now. And it seemed like, as he turned and walked out, that the fact that I wished I could meant almost as much to him as if I could go. It matters. Any bid for connection that goes ignored or unanswered sends the perhaps unintentional message that you don't really want to connect. And if you consistently fail to turn toward your spouse when they make a bid to connect, they may stop making bids altogether. And your relationship then plunges into loneliness. So learning to recognize these bids and responding by turning toward your spouse can make a huge difference for the both of you. Notice and respond to these moments as they happen. Love is cultivated during the micro moments of grind in the everyday life. Just a touch or just a phrase can make time stand still and let you forget everything else for a moment. It's so, so simple. But time spent in these little things that you give each other is priceless. Just priceless. I knew a woman whose husband was killed in a construction accident. Left her with two small children. He just went to work one day and never came home. Sitting with her later, I was interested in hearing her talk about her husband's last kiss on that morning before he left for work. He didn't have to pause and do that. A lot of times we're rushed for time. We know there's traffic on the road. So we rush out the door. They didn't know it was the last kiss. But it turned out to mean so much to her that he just paused and did that before he stepped out to leave for work. So simple. Also, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18:21. Know what is important to each other. And this knowledge only comes from communication. Communication is the mortar that holds a relationship together. But communication is a lot trickier than it might at first appear. It's not only because of the gender difference, but just because of language. And also because of emotion. You take the little word run, R-U-N, three-letter word run that may actually be one of the most complicated words in the English language. There are around 645 usage cases for the verb form alone. Run has so many meanings because context is everything. Context is everything. 
You run out of milk, so you run to the store. On the way, you run over a squirrel as he runs for his life. Then you run a stop sign and run into the car in front of you. Now your car won't run, and your insurance company will run up your price. After a run-in with the law, you've run out of time. You run into the store, someone runs into your leg and puts a run down your legging. Things have run amok. You have tears running down your face. You need a Kleenex to blow your runny nose, and you just want to run away. Context is everything. And in relationships, even the word communication has the same complexity as the word run. It may mean something different to everybody who hears the word communication. But I can tell you this much. People are happier when they spend more time discussing meaningful topics than engaging in small talk. Part of marriage is keeping up to date with your spouse. Let your communication be in the context of your generally loving relationship. And that way you tend to give each other the benefit of the doubt, even if you don't understand exactly what's being said. You stay on track with each other's goals as they emerge and as they change. These conversations are about knowing your spouse's inner world and letting them know your inner world. Those who share their intimate, personal selves with their spouse tend to have the very happiest marriages because that's a big part of what marriage is built to do. So spend a few minutes often talking about meaningful things like what makes each other tick. This is the most important person in your life. And you want to know everything there is to know. And one lifetime isn't really even enough to do that because they keep on always changing. But when you reveal your inner world and your spouse fully embraces the real you, this vulnerability and acceptance will help you to find a profound intimacy together. Ask questions of your spouse. They can start very simply. What was the high point of your day? What was the low point? What is it that's stressing you most at home right now or at work right now? And then you can move to other varieties of things. What one skill do you wish you had learned but haven't yet? What three things have you done in your life that you're most pleased with? Or this was, is an interesting one. If you could live one year of your life all over again without changing a thing... What year would you choose and why? Or if you had to take a sabbatical and couldn't work for a year, what would you most like to do? You can go on all day with these questions, but this is the lifeblood of a marriage, these conversations. I know there are times that you have to take a call. It's very common parlance now, isn't it? I have to take this. And I know that that's often true. But remember that by allowing technology to interfere with or to interrupt important conversations, you may be sending the implicit message that you value something else more than you value your spouse. It's easy to make it seem that a person is less important than your phone. Lots of people now are checking their phones hundreds of times per day and it's impacting a lot of things. So make the most of those little moments. Make the most. That last goodbye kiss that was perhaps even given perfunctorily in the moment. 
came to mean so much when in the context of the death of a husband. They didn't know it was the last time. And that's the tricky thing about life. It can only... It, it has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward, as Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, said. You don't know when it's the last time. I remember one time leaving Royal Stadium with our older son. And as we got out of the stadium and crossed the sidewalk and we were going to cross the road, he just instinctively reached up and took hold of my hand. And somehow I had the thought, there's going to be a last time that he does that. I wonder if this is the last time. And it might have been. That might have been the last time. But you don't know when the last time is until later. That's the tricky part. I was also asked to comment on caring for your spouse after an injury or a lifelong health issue. Very important thing. I'm very glad this question was asked. I, I won't say too much about it, but I'll give you an illustration that I hope says everything I would say about it in a more extended discussion. One man's wife was in a care center at the end stages of Alzheimer's disease. And he visited her every day. But she didn't know him. Didn't recognize anybody, didn't recognize him as her husband at all. Somebody asked him, why do you visit her every single day when she doesn't even know who you are? And without batting an eye, he said, because I know who she is. That's the spirit. If we've got that spirit, the details take care of themselves. Faithful till death. And if we don't have that, we don't have much. If my wife does not know that I'll care for her no matter what happens to her physically, what kind of a marriage have we got? We've got nothing. Uh, there were a couple other things in the assignment, I think, but it probably touched on those most when we were looking at those scriptures. I also was supposed to pause and see if you have any questions or thoughts that you'd like to insert at this point. And I haven't left you as much time as I might have. Anybody got a question or a comment or thought? It looks like maybe we're approaching critical mass on marriage, huh? Thank you, Kenny. Thank you, Kenny. I appreciate that. Well, I'll conclude by saying that in the power of God's Holy Spirit, marriage can be the grace of life. Two heirs of that grace can share its riches together because of what God has done. And other generations seeing that can be raised to the same joys by the same path of obedience. All we really need to do is to commit ourselves afresh to God as husbands and wives and be obedient as He enables us. And again, I go back to that concept of forgiveness, which I think is one of the most important things, not only in living in a neighborhood, but especially in the church and being married. Forgiveness is one of the very most important things and one of the most difficult to do unless we see ourselves as God sees us. We're only here for a limited period of time. At some point in our aging, we come to really understand that in a way we didn't before. It's not going to be much longer that we're here, so I can handle this for this limited period of time. I can forgive. I can obey what God says on all of these issues because now I don't see a full lifetime stretching before me. I see 
only a few years at most. It's a difference in perspective. The Bible paints the picture of forgiveness in the context of forgiving a debt. In Matthew 18, Jesus told the familiar story about the man who was forgiving an overwhelming financial debt. And rather than let the gratitude that he felt flow through him to other people, he refused to forgive a small debt. And you know the story very well. You didn't have pity on the one that you could have had pity on. Even though I forgave you the great debt. When we think about what God has forgiven us and continues to forgive us, that puts it in a context where we should be able to completely, fully, and freely forgive because that's the way God forgives us. And when that's the way we handle that relationship of marriage, it tends to take on a new tone. I'm not worried about what you did wrong to me yesterday. I'm not worried about what you did wrong to me this morning. Because we're heirs together of the grace of life. And when we both have that attitude, what a different spark it puts in your marriage. It makes all the difference in the world, even though it's just a little thing. The best advice I can give you is just to shoot those foxes. Shoot them every time they turn up. And make sure that you're watching out for the little things. You naturally watch for the big things. But make sure you're watching out for the small things. I want to say a few more things about the issue of communication as well. Communication is difficult from a number of standpoints. And one of the reasons it is is because of our difficulties in really understanding each other. I don't think a week goes by, but what some woman says to me, he won't talk to me, speaking of her husband. Or there are long periods of uneasy silence in our home. Dialogue is to love as blood is to the body. And when the blood stops, the body dies. So when dialogue stops, love dies and resentment and hatred are born. But dialogue can revive a relationship and bring it back into being. Dialogue can bring into being once again a relationship that has died. Reemphasizing the good news is that it's never too late. I don't care what the state of your marriage is now. It's never too late. I don't even need to know the details. I already know it's never too late. The main thing is that you're willing to work at it. Remember what happens with nonverbal communication. And also remember that by communication, we don't mean agreement. There's lots of places in marriage to disagree. We can agree to disagree and get on just fine. 93% of communication is nonverbal. If I say to you, oh, I, I really feel great today, when it looks like I can't hardly stand up, which do you take, my words or my appearance? You take the appearance almost every time. Gestures. If somebody's got closed fists, if they're finger pointing, if they're folding their arms and legs, that communicates no matter what they're saying. If you reach for her hand and she pulls it away, that's communication even though nothing was said. Dad who's reading a magazine and his little girl comes in and wants to show him 
her new picture and he says that's pretty honey while never taking his eyes off the paper he's communicating he's showing her what her position of importance is from his point of view if the nonverbal and the verbal contradict people are confused and generally the verbal is eventually disbelieved when we verbally communicate we tend to slip into extremes if something was all good or all bad all sweet or all bitter, all honest or all dishonest. We use those exaggerative terms, always and never. We make accusations. Instead of using I statements, I felt this way when you said that. We say, you, you did this, you said that, you hurt me. So in Christian communications, we learn how to do this better. We learn how to do it right. We learn to... Follow that golden rule to treat somebody else the way we want to be treated. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice be put away and become kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. This is to people married and unmarried. It's in the context of the church. But never is it so applicable as in marriage. Your attitude is reflected in your tone of voice. And sometimes, an attitude that you don't really have may seem to come through your tone of voice. It took me a long time to learn that one, too. When I get in a hurry, which is very frequent, I have apparently a certain tone of voice. Nothing changed except I just got in a hurry. I felt the stress of time pressure. But my tone changed, and that caused my wife to question my love. I didn't even realize it was happening until she reminded me about a thousand times that I was doing that and I think, I hope in these latter days that I'm finally figuring that out how important that is, maybe in particular to a woman how important the tone is sometimes the tone is more important than the words you know that from talking to dogs you can say anything to a, do a dog but if you say it in a nice tone he'll wag his tail, lick your hand you, say, you can say the most terrible things to a dog if you do it in a nice tone but you can say the most loving things to a dog in an angry tone, he'll slink away with his tail between his legs because he takes the tone. He takes the tone for the meaning. Focus on one another's strengths. The little things that aggravate us most about each other get emphasized and they seem like the whole ballgame when really they probably only constitute about 15% of his or her personality. It seems like 90% because we focus on the 15. I have found that to be true. Acceptance. Just that hug that maybe even be unspoken. I can't tell you how many years it took me to start to remember just to grab my wife and hug her. Such a simple thing. But it doesn't come naturally to me. I don't know why. Maybe it's personality. Maybe I wasn't raised in a home that was particularly physical. But just to grab my wife and hug her means a great deal to her. I think that's true of most women. I see women hugging each other. And I've seen that in lots of different countries around the world. It's not just cultural. It seems to be a feminine desire. They love those hugs. And listening, once again, the cornerstone of communication. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Two ears, one tongue to be used in that proportion. Members of your family are experts on you. So listen to what they have to say. Hear them completely. If you answer before you hear, 
It's to your folly and shame. Proverbs 18.33 Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. James 1.19 There is more hope for a fool than for a man hasty in his words. Proverbs 29, verse 20. In my relating to my wife, I need to ask myself every day, are my motives pure? Am I attacking because my feelings are hurt? Am I exaggerating? Is what I'm about to say going to help, or will it hinder? A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 15, verse 4. So I agree with what Wade said yesterday. Validate the feelings. Whether you agree with the concept or not. Validate the feelings. She tells you about something. You must have felt bad. That must have made you feel terrible. I can see why you're upset. You can say that without agreeing with whatever concept is being presented. I'm not sure why it's so difficult to listen. I can really usually do pretty well with listening until I start talking. And then when I start, it's hard for me to cut it off as you may well know. But the inertia is that we can think about three times as fast as we can talk, and that's why it's hard to pay attention to somebody, because they say something, and that takes us down one rabbit trail or another in our head, and pretty soon we've missed the next three paragraphs. Proverbs 18.2 A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but in expressing his own opinion. Some people say, well, it's really hard to listen because they talk too much. And you know, I've had four-year-olds before. It is hard to listen to all of that. But what would you give to go back to heaven that four-year-old later on and to be able to listen to all of it? When you're raising those children, it seems like they're always going to be in that stage and it's going to go on forever and you're always going to be in the secret service protecting, protecting them from themselves and others. And then once they're raised, you think, boy, that went fast. But you can't go back. You can never go back. So turn off that TV more often and listen to one another. Admit your faults immediately as soon as you recognize them. That clears the air. It softens the heart. Learn when to use humor and when to be serious. That can be hard. Let the effect of your words rather than the intention of your words be your guide be specific be complete and try to know what you're going to say before you start talking recognize moods for what they are they're just moods don't overreact to a mood there'll be a different mood soon enough allow each other enough alone time individually that you can enjoy your time as a couple Allow for prayer alone and together. And if you're having trouble communicating, I recommend written dialogue, where you write out a letter, and then when your spouse reads it away from you, they won't be able to interrupt you.